0: Good morning, morning. two weeks ago we had a live text-in event called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church, and what we invited people to do was to pull out their phones and text in any question that they had on God, theology, the Bible, and its intersection with life. And the volume of questions was so much two weeks ago that I was only able to get to maybe a quarter of them on the spot. So what we're doing these next couple of weeks is cleanup. We're taking those unanswered questions that you texted in, and what we've done is we've tried to group them around live themes, like themes. Last week, we looked at questions on, on uh, forgiveness. Today, we're looking at questions on creation. There was an an inordinate amount of questions that came in asking about various interactions and interrelations between scientific discovery and observation and the Bible, particularly in this realm of creation and origins. So, 11 questions today that we're going to hit in this regard. Let's jump into it. Number one, is it acceptable to view some Bible stories, especially Old Testament ones, as symbolic. For example, Adam and Eve or Noah's Ark. Yeah, sure it is, but you don't get to do it just because you want to. There is a term that you need to learn today, and it's one that has been very misapplied and misunderstood by the church today. It's called literal. Now, Fellowship of Faith in particular approaches the Bible with what's called a literal understanding. However, literal doesn't mean what most people think it means. In biblical studies, what the word literal means is taking the passage and interpreting it as the author intended it to be read. Does this make sense? I'm going to give you a few examples to show you how this works in practice. So, take a look at this um, passage out of the Gospels. It says some Pharisees came to Jesus, and they said, leave this place and go somewhere else, because Herod, you know, King Herod, he wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go tell that fox. And he goes on to say, I'm going to heal the sick and and raise the dead and go to Jerusalem. Now, does this passage require us to believe that King Herod had four legs and a bushy tail? No. No. But a literal reading of this passage is to understand it as an analogy or a metaphor, to understand it as Jesus meant it to be interpreted. Does this make sense? You can go through the Bible and do this in a number of ways. Let me show you this one. Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of that Herod. What's great about this one is his disciples do take him in a very wooden, straightforward manner. And their answer... Jesus must be talking about bread. And and, and Jesus' response is, are you really that dense? Do you not understand the metaphor that I'm using? What about this? Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, drop dead and give me a share of your inheritance. He goes off, he spends it in wild living. It's the story of the prodigal son. Because Jesus told this story... Are we required to believe that there actually was a man who had two sons that this actually happened to? Or is it okay to understand it as a parable, as a story, as as an illustration that Jesus made up for a deeper point? Are, Are you with me? This gets particularly interesting when you come to questions of creation. Because Genesis 1 is not the only place that speaks to this issue of origins or creation. Let me show you a few. Um, We'll we'll skip those for time. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. New Testament. Are we required to say that the earth actually has four corners? Is some kind of rectangle or square? What about numbers? Uh, Or how about this one? He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Jesus said this. Do we have to take that woodenly, that the sun is the one actually moving around the earth, rising or setting, or can we understand it just as a observable thing, despite what's actually happening behind the scenes following? How about numbers? Um, Here's one number. It says the list of men of the people of Israel, it's a census, of Adonakam, there were 666. Are we to take that number literally, or are we to take it Figuratively. Same number, how about this one? So when we talk about literal interpretation of the Bible, the question is, how does a particular passage want to be read? To say that the entire Bible should be taken, for, taken in a straightforward, literal way is to misinterpret it and not do what the scriptures say. However, to take things metaphorically or symbolically because you might not like the straightforward significance does equal damage to the text. And so the question comes when we see, as the example asked, Noah's Ark, Adam and Eve. How does the author want those to be read? As myth, cosmology, theological illustration, or history. I want to recommend a couple of books to you. One is called Reading Genesis 1 and 2. It takes four authors who take very different reads of Genesis 1 and 2, approaching it in different ways, and then they counterpoint each other. Check it out. The other is this, The Lost World of Genesis 1. We'll be looking at this a little bit more in depth in the fall. I'm not going to answer the question. Do your own research. (laughs) Question two. Conflict between creation, science, Big Bang, creation story. How do you balance the two theories? Question one and two seem very interrelated, don't they? How do you balance the two theories? Carefully and critically. Come this September, we're going to begin a 40-week journey through the Old Testament. And in September, we're going to spend a lot of time soaking in Genesis 1, and we even hope to bring in some speakers to talk about creation theory versus evolutionary theory and so forth. I'm not going to delve into this too hardcore now, except to offer a few like satellite view ways of looking at this and a couple of corrections along this path. I think most people want to treat the Bible like a pie. And what they do is they come to the pie and they start cutting pieces. They start dividing it up into natural elements and supernatural elements, especially when it comes to this question of origins. So they come to Genesis 1 or they come to Genesis 2 and they go, did this happen because of the Big Bang? Or did this happen because God said, boom. Do you understand that Genesis 1 and 2 and the worldview of ancient Israel made no distinction between natural and supernatural? Do you understand that in the Old Testament there is no such thing as a word for miracle? Because the Old Testament people did not think in terms of this dichotomy that we have today. One great example is Genesis 1.25. I think I put it up here. 24 says this, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. Get the idea? God makes creation and he says, start start reproducing, start making things according to your kind. But then it turns around and says, God made the wild animals according to their kinds. Did God make them or did they reproduce? Yes? Do you see how Genesis doesn't make a distinction between the natural and the supernatural? Now, to those of you in this room who are dyed in the world, died in the wool, naturalists, pride yourself on the scientific mind. I want to caution you against something that happens in science today. Thinking that all that exists is all that you can measure, test, and see. Science provides amazing answers and insights into this world at a certain level, at the level of that which is observable, testable, controllable, that can be experimented on. Something that works great on, right? Have you ever tried to do that with God? Have you ever tried to put God into a controlled experiment to see if you could predict what he would do? Because intelligent minds can't be controlled that way, especially ones that that pride themselves on staying one step ahead of you and me. Right? I want to encourage you, instead of thinking of the Bible as a pie, divided into natural and supernatural, to think about it more like a marble cake. You ever have one of these things, vanilla and chocolate all swirled together? And and science may do a great job of analyzing the vanilla, but the chocolate is there permeating it as well. And science's limitations is to the vanilla, but does that mean the rest isn't there? It's kind of like a fish who thinks that because all I can see is water, all that there must be is water completely unaware that that water is oxygenated with something he can never discover that's keeping him alive. I think the Bible, in origin theories, works in a very similar way. Likewise, those of you who are in this room, who pride yourself on a certain degree of, of shall I say, six-day, 6,000-year creationism, Without getting into my personal opinion, if I think it's correct or not, I just simply want to challenge you. Are you more concerned with the scientific data and how to make Genesis match it? Or what the text of Genesis actually says? See, so many people that I've come across do this quick reading of Genesis 1 and come to conclusions that get bolstered by something they heard from a radio preacher, and fail to ask, what did this text mean to the people who first heard it? I want to challenge you to explore that further. Okay? Next question. I was recently at Mammoth Cave, which formed over millions of years. Was this before Adam And Eve, first you're starting with an assumption that it was formed over millions of years, and I want to challenge you on that assumption. The idea that Mammoth Cave was formed over millions of years is based on a hypothesis, based on certain scientific theories that cannot be reproduced and that no one had witnessed firsthand. Now, it might make logical sense. There might be strong possibility towards it, but I caution you to put all your eggs in one basket without examining the theory at its core. The theory is based on something called uniformitarianism. Big word, impress your friends and neighbors. You can hear uniform in there, right? Meaning the same. It's a theory of origins that says what the earth is doing now is what the earth always did. The rate at which the earth changes now is the rate at which it's always changed. So if you take a look at a stream and you figure out it erodes so much of a rock, um, so many cubic yards of a rock per year, you multiply that by the size of the hole in the rock and you go, what well, must be that many years old? you following how the theory works? My challenge back to this has always been, have you found that nature always works that way? Or have you found that in times, nature will hit tipping points? And when it crosses that threshold, things happen in a rapid sort of way. I remember when I was going to school down in Chicago, we'd get off the Kennedy at the Lawrence Avenue Bridge, and I remember seeing three-foot stalactites that had formed off the Lawrence Avenue Bridge. Now, according to a uniformitarian theory, those should have formed at like a millimeter a year. That bridge must have been thousands of years old. Amazing, the ancient technology that that they must have had. I caution you on, on, on banking into every scientific theory that you hear. Now, second, was that before Adam and Eve? There is a school of thought called Old Earth Creationism that seeks to take modern-day scientific theory, and mesh it into the witness of Genesis 1. And what this theory will say is that between Genesis one, 1 and Genesis 1, two, there is a gap. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light. They'll say that God created the heavens and the earth a long time ago, millions if not billions of years ago and that's responsible for what we see but then God in verse two comes in and starts doing animals and man and things like this. It's interesting, I don't buy it, I'll leave it at that. Question four, dinosaurs dinosaurs. You know, that, that, that triceratops is, is pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, it's just dinosaurs are, dinosaurs are cool. They're okay in my book. Um, I don't really know what the question means beyond that. Question five. <laughs> Christianity dispels time travel, correct? No, it doesn't. Um, The Bible really never speaks to something like time travel. Well, it may once. There's this instance in Joshua 10, just as an aside, where the Israelites are are, are prevailing and they're gaining, gaining ground in battle, but the sun is coming down and they're like, Lord, we need more time. And so the story is that God does this, not an Old Testament word, my word, miracle, and he freezes the sun up in the sky for like 10 more hours. Now, was that stopping time? Was that just... Well, you're getting more light, but time moves on. I don't know, all right? But, but I think the question hits on this. There are a lot of things the Bible doesn't speak to. And if the Bible doesn't speak directly to it, I think we need to be really careful about making dogmatic assertions about it. Question six. What are your thoughts on the show Ancient Aliens? <laughs> Sorry, never saw it, all right? And to the other person out here who asked, I never saw Supernatural either, but I'm told that I really need to. Um, Question seven. So what does the Bible say about aliens? What are your thoughts on the topic? You know, I think we really need to ground ourselves in what the Bible says about them. Here's some things. It says that God loves them. All right? All right. It says that we're to be compassionate towards them. You know? It even says that our spiritual forefathers were aliens. And did you know that Jesus and Mary and Joseph for a time were aliens too? All right? There you go. (laughs) Question eight. (laughs) Is this like so unsatisfying? (laughs) Now let me back up on it. You know, seriously, uh, you know, maybe you're talking about extraterrestrials and not immigrants there. I'm just going to take a stab at it. Um, and I'm just going to say, you know, th- there's, there's room in God's plan for it. Um, when the Bible talks about the salvific work of God, it talks about it in, 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 in ways that is broader than humanity alone. It says that Christ died for all creation which is bigger than earth alone. Jesus is not some local tribal deity of a planet called earth. He is the God of the universe. And if there is other life out there, it will fall under God's plan and presence and redemption and restoration too. If it's simple life like a bacteria, it might fall under the canopy the same way that animal life does on our planet. And if it's intelligent life, maybe it falls into it in the way that it falls into for us like people who have never heard, you know? We don't know all those details yet, but we do know that God is the God over all. By the way, if you get hungry on this stuff and you like this stuff like time travel and and the Bible and aliens in the Bible, I suggest a... a a fictional trilogy to you written by C.S. Lewis. The first is called this, Out of the Silent Planet. It raises some very intriguing questions about this, Um, written back in the 50s, of course, but but nonetheless, um, I think it's worth the time. Check it out. Question nine. Why are we considered to be God's only creations in his image? Uh, Great question, you know, the reason why is because we are the only thing that the Bible specifically says was made in God's image. In Genesis 1, you see God making and ordering all kinds of things, and the rest of the Bible will talk about this as well. There is only one thing in the Bible that the scriptures say was made in God's image explicitly, straightforwardly, deliberately. It's humanity. Here's the passage. And it kickstarts the rest of, of what the Bible has to say. In our likeness, in our image, let's make them. Male and female, he created them. This is why, too, in the New Testament, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That when Jesus took on humanity, he took on the image of God and away... <laughs> that starts bringing to fruition in fulfillment all that God intended back in Genesis 1. Make sense? Thank you. Question 10. Are sons of God in Genesis 6, the line of Seth, angels, or something else? Are any of you sitting here right now going, I have no clue what this question is about? Be bold. All right, let me show you the passage It comes out of, well, Genesis 6, and it's in this early run of the Bible that's filled with, shall we say, some of the amazing, spectacular, supernatural things that often make people today um, uncomfortable. The creation story, Noah's Ark, and this weird little bit right here. When man began to increase in numbers on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever. He is mortal. His days will be 120, which makes you go, my gosh, I wish it was that long, right? What was it before then? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The question basically is this Who are these Nephilim? Who who what is this like offspring of, of the children of God and the sons of men? Two prevailing theories that have been out there through the history of the Bible. One is to say the children of God were the line of Seth. Adam and Eve, they had two kids, Cain and Abel. Cain was a jerk. He killed his brother Abel, all right? Cain gets a curse and a genealogy or a a family line starts from Cain that seems to go and rebel against God. Adam and Eve have another kid. His name is Seth. And Seth has a family tree or a line that continues to seek God. And so some have said the children of God might be a designation for the line of Seth, while the sons of men are, or the daughters of men are a designation for the line of Cain. And so it's very natural biological reproduction and that this crossing of family lines led to this this race of Nephilim who kind of had maybe the strength of both worlds or something like that. I don't know, it's certainly less weird, isn't it, than going like angels coming down and mating with humans and creating like supergiants. Anyone see Noah earlier this summer? That took the latter theory, that what Genesis 6 is actually referring to is that somehow Cosmic celestial beings were in some way reproducing with humanity, creating some kind of superhuman mutant race. Now, for those of you who are nodding your head, putting the atrocity called Noah aside that happened earlier this summer, all right, that has actually been the prevailing theory through Judaism and Christianity up until people felt they were too scientific to believe such things. So the difficulty that you have if you dismiss it is you dismiss the way that Jesus probably thought about it. The apostles probably thought about it. Certainly the writings of Jesus' day, how they wrote about it. Um, You can read all that intertestamental literature. That's where the movie Noah took it from, at least in part. The other fly in the ointment is that whenever the Bible talks about the children of God or the sons of God, nine times out of ten, if not more, it's referring to angels. Angels. So what do you do about that? Yeah, it might be weird, but is God ever weird? Does God ever do weird things? Or is your mind limited to that which you can see and that which exists now? Or is there room in God's schema for bigger possibilities? Wrestle on that. Question 11. Why did God originally create humanity? Have you ever asked that one? It's like, what are we doing here? Like, like God, what, what, what's the point of all this? I was walking by the chalkboard on the way to the bathrooms. So have you guys checked this thing out yet? It's written on there, if you could ask God one question, and then people are jotting the questions on. One of the questions is this. If you could ask God one question, dot, 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 someone put this in. Why in the heck did you make mosquitoes? <laughs> you know what? The follow-up question started to train. In another handwriting, in another color of chalk, someone wrote this. And ticks. I looked at it today. There's a third on it. You know what it says? And people. <laughs> Here is a slew of Scripture passages that touch on it. I'm not going through all those right now. Write them down, all right? Look it up. But let me share with you how various Christian traditions have synthesized and summarized much of what's said in the Bible. Here's from the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's the chief end of woman, too, all right? Kind of like that. Here's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Father, you formed man in your own likeness and set him over the world to serve you, his creator, and to rule over all creatures. Here's from the Baltimore Catechism. God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world and to be happy with him forever. In heaven, isn't it amazing how all these different Christian streams seem to come to the same consensus of why we're here? I really like those. By the way, if you're interested, here's the uh, the Lutheran answer to this from Luther's Small Catechism. You ready? It says, "This is um, as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household, in a simple way." All right. Here's its answer. <laughs> I-, I wanted to get it on one slide. And uh, we wonder why people are not attracted to Lutheranism in this day and age. (laughs) Why are you here? Because there's a God who loves to create and a God who desires to be in relationship. And like any good, healthy relationship that is marked by joy and intimacy and love, It says that God did put us here to be his regents, his his rulers, not over him, but over his creation, to take this world he's given us, to care for it, to treat it like it's God's and make sure it brings glory and honor to him. God has invested more purpose and meaning and authority into us, then I think we can wrap our minds around it staggers the imagination. Eleven questions on creation that you asked. Hopefully, none of them, especially the major ones, you take simplistically. God is revealing himself in this world just as he revealed himself in this world. And you ever notice how God doesn't give all the answers? Do you know why? I'm going to give you my theory on it. It's because I think he wants us to seek him. I think he wants us to search him out. How many times do we ask a question so that we can settle our mind and dismiss the issue and get about our happy lives. Thank you very much. When all the while God is saying, there is an infinite depth of me and my working in this world to discover, and I want you to seek it out, to pant after it, to hunger for it, to not be satisfied with one-sentence cliches so that I can get more focusing on more important things like mowing the lawn and getting to work and watching TV. There is a God who made you in his image and he is hungry to forge something deep and personal with you. Don't take that lightly in your heart or in your mind. Hey band, we're going to invite you to come back up and I want to invite the rest of you to stand and pray. With me. Let's pray. God, we live in a world where so many people have dismissed you because science seems to have the answers that they're looking for. Science has provided ways to squeeze you out or to minimize you. God, we are so guilty of seeing the vanilla and missing the chocolate, of seeing the water and missing the air. Lord, may we be a people that see what your scriptures attest to, that you are alive and active in this world, not only in its creation, but in sustaining it still. God help us not to be afraid of the discoveries and the observations we make in this world. But Lord may we not be too quick to dismiss what what your prophets and your son came and said. May we trust you, God. May we trust what you've revealed. May we trust your attitude towards us in this world. And may we be hungry to understand what that revelation really is. Guide us to stay, God. Guide those who hold you at arm's length because of stumbling blocks about creation. To come and see that you are real and you are good and your hand is involved. Forgive those of us who to simplistically run to rash conclusions without studying your word and ingesting it into the fiber of our being. So God, here we are, your image, your creation. May we live up and be worthy of that calling. Forgive us when we're not. Redeem us and transform us. And to the people you made us to be. God, hear a prayer. Hear us as we pray in the way you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses